Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer on the This Is HCD Network. A very warm welcome to the very first episode of Bringing Design Closer. It's a podcast dedicated in exploring the tactical and strategic things that work in enabling a design centricity to occur in organisations, businesses and governments. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design practitioner based in Dublin City, Ireland. Now, In this episode, we caught up with André Chaminet, author of a fantastic book, Designing With and Within Public Organisations. In the episode, we discuss what are the biggest things that prevent local councils and governments from adopting design methods. We ask what makes the challenges of adopting design and government unique. We discuss what is a wicked problem. And we discuss also what are the tactical things that we can do to solve wicked problems, such as framing and reframing as a tactical tool, as being critical to the success of not only the project, but also as the integrity of the methods themselves. So let's get started. Andrew Chamonet, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Uh, So, Andre, tell us, where are you coming from today? Oh, I'm sitting in my living room in a medium-sized city in the Netherlands called Nijmegen, uh, which is somewhat in between Amsterdam and the beautiful city of Eindhoven, where the Dutch Design Week always is. Ah, excellent. I've been meaning to get to that, but now that I'm back in this part of the world, I'll, I'll try and get there maybe next year. So, Andre... I was given your book by your publishers a number of months ago, and I'm only getting around to it now, and it's Designing With and In Public Organizations. And it was a great read, and I really, really enjoyed it. But let's start. Tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you describe what you do to your mum. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, first of all, I've been, I've been trained as an urban designer in the late 90s and the beginning of this millennium. I was in university. And I enjoyed that a lot. I, I started working in that field as well. But I always also have been involved in the art scene. I've founded two record labels, also in the wow. 90s. Uh, I've been doing that for about 15 years. And after a few years working in the field of urban design, I found myself working for a consultancy firm uh, called Twijnstraghudde, uh, one of the leading firms in the Netherlands. And although I enjoyed working there a lot, I was trying to figure out who I was in, in, in that field because up until I started working for Transagoda, I was always, I combined a more technical job with a more artistic um, approach with music. And I kind of lost that in the first few years that I worked for Transagoda. And I've always been inspired by artists and designers, how they bring about solutions to complicated societal issues in a way that I can't and that most of the people I work with can't either. Yeah. And in one stage, I was looking at some work from pretty young designers and I thought to myself, well, actually, they ask questions that nobody in my field asks and they design interventions that I have not seen before. And what would happen if I take them along on my assignments? And this basically was the start of a decade where I 
brought in designers in all kinds of assignments I got from different sorts of governmental organizations. I mainly work in the public sector. And that was quite beautiful because I was not too familiar with design. I knew it inspired me, but I didn't know about methods and instruments and how it worked. But by observing the way uh, designers work and how people and organizations respond to their skills and their attitude and their instruments, I learned that there was something missing in on the interface between uh, design and organizations. And basically, that is what I've been focusing on for the last decade, about on the question how to bring forward a thorough and impactful design process in organizations that are not equipped to work with designers in essence. Yeah, they're baked in their old world type of behaviors. It's that, but it's also that they are public organizations are designed in a manner that they are fundamentally unable to work in a way a designer prefers to work. When I started working with designers in public organizations, I noticed that although many people in public organizations were really open for a different approach and they were really looking for creativity, the moment designers started working, they would cause some reactions. And I, I call them friendly fire now these days. Friendly fire. Ah. So even if public organizations hire designers to work together, to collaborate, the way of working of designers is so different in nature most of the time that within these organizations, they, the reactions come about that limit the space for a thorough design process. And perhaps I can best describe this by giving you a little bit of background in how we look at design from a change management perspective. It is important to understand that most changes are being brought about by ways of cognitive fact-finding and negotiating in public sector organizations. So most civil servants, they come up with proposals based on facts and figures and evaluations. True. And all these proposals, most of the time, they fit the system. And then when they've got these proposals, the leadership considers them. And depending on resources, such as time and money, combined with the political ideology of uh, the people who take the decision, they take the decision. So is that process there one of the, the biggest resistance, that the fact that the proposals are being sent into people to make the decision and the people that get to make the decisions are sometimes from the old world? I'm not, I'm not so sure what, what old world means. Um, so, let me describe old world. Old world are people who've been like behaviorally, organizationally institutionalized to that way of thinking. They think like a government. They don't think from the service perspective. So whenever the people go and they actually base their proposals to effectively inform new world type of thinking, they're presenting it to somebody who is from the old world and they may just define and decide, you know, should we do this project based on their own mental models of what they believe to be the right decision? I'm not sure if thinking in old world and new world is eventually going to help us. Of course, there is this systems logic in public organizations. Okay. And this systems logic prevents you to dive into the perspective of your end user. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable how many civil servants actually have contact with end users, with civilians. Yeah. It's only a few of them. And those people are usually not the ones who are uh, who, who hold a lot of power in those organizations. So they're really important and they're excellent professionals, 
but they are often not the people who bring systematic change about. Anyway, these systems, they tend to be dominant over the life world perspective. Right. However, in the systems approach is also the guarantee of a good democratic system. So you have to understand, I think, that things like equality before the law is guaranteed by the way we design these systems. So when a designer comes into an organization, they tend to think from the end user and come up with proposals that actually will make a difference in the outside world. But if the public organization who has to be responsible for those ideas can't guarantee basic principles like equality for the law, Mm -hmm. then their ideas will not be adopted. So what design does not do very well is redesign the core values of organizations. So what what I see that design does is that they, they come in, look at the issue, look at the end users, come up with a proposal, but they forget that there is like a box outside the box. You know, we look at the issue as a, as a box where we have to think outside. And then we, yeah. we thought of outside that box and then there is another box and that's the organization that has to shift. Yeah, but that's the space where we need to play. Yeah, definitely. And we have to understand that, that these organizations, although many things don't go as well as they should, democratically speaking, they work pretty decent. So we can't just say it's the old world and we have to abandon the old world. We have to see which core values are standing in the way of finding meaningful ideas and redesign these core values. And this we can only do in co-creation with both the civil servants and the leadership. And this is the second problem, and that is that design is not so good with power. Yeah. It's interesting, like it's I'm learning as I'm speaking to you now at the moment, and it's probably my own experiences of dealing with government that when you're a designer and you're going into government and, and you meet that resistance, that cold face, and you're trying to push through that change and you get that resistance. Yeah. It's my behavior and my understanding of oh actually, you know what, they don't think like me, they're old world, and I compartmentalize those experiences of being said, oh, they're like me, you know, it's tribes, it's subcultures, whatever you want to call it. And I've experienced that. I know like from working in governments in many countries, but it's interesting to get that perspective on it. And it's totally, I agree with it, but it's an interesting conversation to be had. So within your book, there's lots of great points in it. And you speak about wicked problems. Now, for the people who are listening, who aren't aware of what a wicked problem is, how do you describe it? You can describe it in various manners. Um, uh, Professor Case Dost, who wrote the book Frame Innovation, uh, the method I, I prefer to work from, he described wicked problems as problems that are open, networked, dynamic, and complex. And open means that many people have access to it. So pe- many people have an interest in, you know. In the problem. Yeah. It's dynamic. It changes while you work on it. And it's networked, which means if you start working on it, you, you cause troubles on total different uh, dossiers and totally different silos. Mm. And if a problem is wicked, which means if it's open, dynamic, networked, and complex, it usually means that the answer has to be open, networked, dynamic, and complex as well. Mm. Yeah. Another saying from change management is um, a wicked problem is a problem where What's allowed doesn't work, and what works isn't allowed. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because <laughs> that's really interesting for me. Like, what works isn't allowed is probably the resistance that I've experienced. 
and you know you, you conduct your the best design research you've validated the best possible you know ideas you've been inclusive and you've presented it back to government the decision makers and nothing happens yeah what are we doing wrong well things that typically go wrong is that you work from a a perspective on society that's not politically feasible and sometimes not even feasible from a social uh, perspective yeah so the interesting thing is that a designer does not hold a position of power yet they exercise a lot of power yeah and what design does is by going out there and speak to people you are actually interfering in the force field that's maintaining the problem. And it's probably the right thing to do if you want to find a solution. But you can imagine that if you are disturbing the force field, so you're neglecting some people you do not find relevant and you're highlighting people that you do find relevant, you also start creating your own resistance because you're starting to make a co-creational process that actually is going to lead to some meaningful solutions. However, most of the parties in this wicked issue are not in a co-creative process. They are in a negotiating process. And in a negotiating process, totally different rules apply. Uh, You're only having a seat on the table if you have an interest, if you have a stake. So all these people who have an interest in the issue but are not so important from an end user's perspective, if they get excluded, they are going to resist. And this resistance can take all forms. So there are like three games played in a wicked problem. And the first is a cognitive approach, finding the one true solution and implement it in a project manner. This is how most engineers, but also how many civil servants prefer to work. And this is how also they are being managed by their bosses. Then there is the negotiating approach of the leadership. So they lay all the interests on the table and then negotiate and try to get the best deal with as as much support as possible. And then there is the designer who is not looking for compromises or looking for the one true solution, but is starting to find, trying to create a, a shared meaning and trying to build a movement around that, a movement that nobody really can control, nobody can really predict. And these three games are being played at the same time and totally different rules apply. And what's more, there is even a, the language that is being used in these three approaches is totally different. So they don't really understand each other. So if an engineer asks you, have you spoken to the right people? He probably means, have you spoken to people who hold knowledge. And if someone in the negotiating field says, did you speak to the right people? They probably mean, did you speak to the people who hold an interest, who who have power? And if you say to a designer, did you speak to the right people? They probably assume you refer to the end users. Yeah. And these are totally different people. Yeah. These, These might be totally different people. So we speak totally different languages and we have totally different playing rules. And the trick is, uh, you can't say that one approach is better than the other. These three have to be combined in some way. And this is, this is basically what my book is about. There is nobody protecting or guarding the interfaces between these approaches. And, and whose role is that? Who, who do you see owning 
or enabling the bridging of those relationships? Look, that's the million-dollar question. Yeah, it's, it's contextual as well. As long as designers don't have in-depth knowledge about organizations and about power and about you know all these things, it has to be someone from the organizations who hire the designers. Mm. But most people in organizations don't have the in-depth knowledge of design. So who is going to build the bridge? And in the 10 years that I've been working in the field of design, I think there is a third discipline. And the third discipline is about building the context within organizations to bring about a thorough and meaningful design process. And of course, there are people who do meaningful and wonderful things on intuition or um, because they do know about design and about power and about organizations and systems, but there are not so many people. Yeah. And in order to bring design further within public organizations, we have to address this and work on a discipline on the interface of design and organizations. It reminds me of a quote John Thackeray mentioned in one of his keynotes that I'd seen in Barcelona this last year, Ilya Prigenin, and it was in an unstable complex, small islands of coherence have the potential to change the whole system. And it's very similar. So like when I've worked in government organizations, too often you get a group of, of renegades or disruptors and they put together, you know, a stealth team, stealth project, and they work on it tactically. And they work on it covertly as well in many instances. And they, they conduct the research, they conduct the validation, the prototyping. It's inclusive. And it's at that point then that they try to build a movement mm-hmm. outward from those um, stealth projects. So looking at your approach and what we're discussing here about having that bridging gap is it the lead designer or is it, is it the product manager? Who would you see helping enable those bridging between the, I'm going to go back to the new world and you know that system. What have you seen has worked? What works for us most of the times best is that we have, well, basically it's my role. So in all the assignments that I do, it's my role to bridge the gap between design and organizations. And After being in the field of design for 10 years and being surrounded by excellent designers, I've learned a thing or two about design. But I'm really reluctant to call myself a designer when I'm on stage. First of all, the people I bring with me to the case are better designers than I will ever be. But it also makes my position difficult. So I can say things that a designer can't. Organizations trust me more about when I advise on changing the organizations than they do when a designer would say the exact same thing. Mm. On the other hand, when my designers present themselves as a a bit of a crossover between organizational advisors and and designers, what we've experienced is that you can't be so uh, radical in your design. So the designers I work with, they can be far more radical in their approaches, in their suggestions than I can. Yeah. So by giving up the position of a designer, you also give up a little bit of your... Yeah, you're their superpower. Yeah, yeah. So what works best for us, especially in organizations that are not too familiar with design yet, is to bring in two distinct roles. So don't let the designer become an organizational advisor and don't let the organizational advisor be a designer. So you mentioned about the, the new role. What would you call it? Case those ones made me a context builder, and I think that that nails it. Yeah, it's nice. It's also someone who's involved with the framing. It sounds like of the 
the, or the, the reframing of the opportunity yeah, yeah, as opposed to like even defining the project or any of that kind of stuff. It's the opportunity and it's, it's kind of working with that to shape it out. It could also be a business design function. I've seen that work quite nicely, yeah, 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 yeah. but it's, it's really interesting. So Andre, in the book, you mention about reframing as being one of the critical things to dealing with wicked problems. Yeah. Now, I want to speak a little bit more about the tactical things that you've seen that works well, just so the people are listening. They can take that and maybe they, they can start incorporating that into how they're working. So one of the things that you mentioned about is the feasibility, which is obviously desirability, feasibility, and viability. And I see design playing very, very well in desirability, but they also have a huge opportunity in the other two. Mm-hmm. But uh, you call out something that they can do in the framing process around feasibility. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the feasibility of, of the design process has several aspects. When you look, for instance, at the framing and reframing, and for those of you listening who are not familiar with that step in the design process, Frame innovation is the method we work from, and frame innovation says before you actually get up with finding new solutions, you have to look at the frame that you use in finding new meaningful solutions. Because problems are usually framed in a manner that maintain the problem. So before finding new solutions, you have to reframe the issue. And for instance, we worked on a construction site, and the construction site is usually looked at as a place where People have like six years of burden of noise and pollution, etc., before the work is done. And we reframed the construction side to a temporary economy because we we saw in a project in Amsterdam that it was a lot of material, knowledge, machines, etc., being brought into a uh, project in the, in the city center in a densely populated area. And it was also an area where there's a lot of unemployment and um, many people dealing with poverty and we thought well we can you know we can put a fence around this construction site or we can make it as transparent and as possible and see how all these knowledge and skills and materials people can actually benefit from it in in talent development and setting up their own business but if you make that that reframing was from the design point of view i think that was that was quite well done i mean it looks good it felt good uh, and it worked but it did not only work because the design was right. It also worked because we managed to get the system to adopt it. Because what normally happens is that everybody is so focused on reducing the the annoyance for the people around the uh, construction site that that's the only thing that you focus on, you know, reduction of annoyance. So if you start considering this construction site as something that people could benefit from, as something positive, People have to make a great mind shift. That's not how they used to work. They have to stop doing what they were doing. And change. Yeah, they have, to, they have to change. And it also means that we are aiming for different goals than we used to. And the goal normally around the construction side is to make the burden as accepted as possible so that the process can go through as quick as possible so that we can lose as, as little pos- uh, money as possible on the project by the delays. And now the question that we had is how can the area benefit as much as possible from this temporary economy? And this is interesting because the people who are in charge of the project, they might say, well, that is not the task that we were asked to do. Yeah. And this is what normally happens when you make a reframing. 
So what we have to do is make sure that this strategy is adopted and that people say, yeah, well, we are responsible for this new goal and we, we consider it important and we go for it. Yeah. So it goes back to the mindset of the organization because they have to be comfortable with changing course. And what I've seen in governments in particular is they sign off the business case. Treasury tend to give the money like there's two million, whatever, to do this project. Yeah. And, and then to go back to government and kind of go, we're going to do a reframing takes a certain amount of confidence and trust in that team to be able to say, actually, you know what? Well, we've agreed to pay for this over here, but now you're telling me reframing, we're going to end up doing this over here. I've seen projects being stopped for stuff like that. And that's one of the, the biggest problems that I've seen in, you know, preventing the delivery of value and the right thing to be going to, to societal. Yeah, I think I think many of the listeners will, will recognize this. And, you know, there, is, there isn't like this easy set of five rules what to do to prevent that from happening. Yeah. Uh, what, I, what I try to do in my book is to give you a lot of cases and explain what happened in that particular case. You definitely have given that. Like I've passed this book around to a few people and they're like, hey, this is really good. It's a good, and this is not me trying to sell a book, by the way. I wouldn't do that if I didn't believe in the book. It's a strong book for anyone who's, who's working in, in these difficult spaces. Thank you. And it's it's something that I know, like I, I'm probably a, a difficult person to speak to about this because I've gone through Goomer projects, but there's some really good tactical things in, in the book that I found very useful even you've heard it on this episode, <laughs> I was talking about new world, old world. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need to reframe probably myself. So um, I've really enjoyed it. But I want to move on to the, the last part of the interview. And I always end every episode with, with three questions. Yeah. So I'll ask the first question. What is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at and why? Oh, dear. Um there are so many things that excellent designers can do that I can't. And I've given myself the privilege of not having to be able to do that and just accept that they are better in it and make sure that they are in my team. Yeah. So one of the things that we are learning in this stage is I think, I think that, you know, you talked about stealth projects. I think we're quite well aware how to bring about a stealth project. But when it really comes into the force field of power what happens then and how to deal with it and how to manage it that's still a bit of a learning field also for us because up until now we've had a whole bunch of experiences but there's so much more to learn and i would love to get more to the heart of societal urgent matters where people get to understand that when a design approach is needed that they ask for it but that really asks us to understand on a even deeper level, how design and power interact. All right. So the second question, Andre, is what is the one thing that you wish you were able to banish from the industry and why? To banish from the industry. I think it would be good if we're a bit more cautious with starting all these laboratories, you know, all these, all these labs, because they do serve a function, but they're also an excuse not to engage with the organizational complexity. Yeah. And usually the organizational complexity is eventually holding implementation of your wonderful design back. Yeah. And the IP. That's a great answer. And the last one is what is the advice that you'd give to emerging design talent for the future? 
read, read, read. Read, read newspapers, read opinion magazines. The, th- the thing is that, that if, if you start working in, in this field with societal issues, there are so many sides to it. And it's also, it's intellectually, it's, it's really complicated. And you have to understand where you stand yourself. And you have to understand what the, what the complexity is about. Yeah. And you can't fall back on just the methods and the instruments. So being curious, being truly curious about the complexity and also be curious about the resistance that you experience instead of being annoyed. Yeah. Andre, that is a great answer. It's very true. And it's something that I'm always saying when I, when I mentor young designers is um, go and experience everything and business, um, life, go do charity work, go travel and broaden your mind. It's a great way to, to end the very first episode. Thank you much for your time. Thank you very much. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to Bringing Design Closer. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.